My experience in the insurance industry has been that the methods they use to characterize their clientele or their potential clientele and the underwriting process and whatnot is bucket math. I think in order for the insurance industry to have an even more positive effect on you know, the broader cybersecurity landscape, they have to get their act together when it comes to the risk analytics components of this. Welcome to the Building Cyber Resilience podcast by Resilience. I'm Dr. Ann Irvin, Chief Data Scientist and Vice President of Product Management. And I'm Richard Cyrus, Chief Risk Officer at Resilience. We started this podcast to introduce both the concepts and practices of cyber resilience to the industry, specifically to both practitioners and leaders. In this first episode, Rich and I chat with Jack Jones, Chairman of Fair Institute and co-founder of RiskLens. That's who you heard at the top of the show, emphasizing the importance of measuring risk in order to make smart business decisions. Jack is a Fortune 100 CISO, but this position isn't one he ever imagined himself in. After leading security teams at the top four consulting firms, he was hired by Nationwide to head up their security architecture group. Yeah, I had been there about six months when the CISO left rather suddenly, and they looked around and said, Jack seems easy to get along with. Let's make him CISO temporarily. So they did, and that turned into six years. <laughs> but it wasn't a position I sought. I was, I, uh, I never envisioned myself in a, you know, executive role like that. Didn't think I would enjoy it. Didn't think I would be very good at it. And I had a pretty steep learning curve. Um, it was, uh, you know, it was an uncomfortable time for me at first. I think it's a little more broadly understood and accepted that to be a good CISO today, you have to bring a broader business and risk-based perspective to the table in order to be successful in most companies. But I think that's still where the learning curve is for, for most new CISOs. They're missing the business perspective. And I, I know I certainly suffered from that. Jack eventually got that experience and went on to create the FAIR method of measuring risk, one that encompasses both the specific controls of what you're measuring and the holistic structure of your business. While his experience as a CISO certainly informed how he approached the FAIR methodology, the title of CISO is not a prerequisite for quantitatively measuring security risk. Doug Hubbard, inventor of the AIE method and founder of Hubbard Decision Research, took a different path. So my first job out of grad school was at Coopers and Libran you know, PricewaterhouseCoopers now. I was in their management consulting services. And I happened to work for a partner in charge of uh, management consulting services who himself was pretty quantitative about everything. Um, we saw every problem as a type of quantitative problem, no matter what it was. And I kind of hitched up to that wagon. That made a lot of sense to me. Doug went on to write his book, How to Measure Anything, Finding the Value of Intangibles in Business, which is about exactly what it sounds like. I don't think I've ever come across anything that was truly immeasurable. And I started writing down a lot, the examples I'd come across, and that kind of started in the late 90s. By the time I got to the early 2000s, uh, I started getting a lot of examples together where I thought, all right, let's put some structure to this. I really think there's only a few reasons why anything ever appeared to be immeasurable, and they're all illusions. I call them the, the dot-com concept object method illusions. Uh, if you overcome those, everything really is measurable. 
If that premise of Doug's is true, that everything really is measurable, we'd better dig into exactly how to measure what matters. Ann and I picked Jack and Doug's brains on how to accomplish this in the new frontier of risk management. We explore themes like how chief information security officers can approach leadership with new ways of solving problems. Why quantitative measures are critical and qualitative aren't enough. How the insurance industry can help create cyber resilient businesses and what we can learn from data across other industries. There's a lot to unpack. So we're going to begin with the basics. Jack gives us a quick lesson on why current quote, bucket math, unquote, isn't enough, and why the elusive unit of measurement can no longer be swept under the rug. There's what I think most people would recognize as qualitative risk management, you know, high, medium, low, red, yellow, green, sorts of things. Then there's quantification where you're doing economically-based and probability-based analyses of, of forecasts of loss and that sort of thing. But there's this middle ground where there's, I think, some confusion so it's, it's common to see organizations that claim to be doing quantification because they're using numbers. And the rule of thumb, I think, that, that people should have in, in mind when they're presented with something that claims to be quantification is they should ask, well, what's the unit of measurement? Because if there's no unit of measurement, you know, a, a frequency, a percentage, a you know, dollars, time, whatever, then it's not quantification. It may be numeric, but that's not the same thing. And for example, you can take an ordinal scale, a one through five ordinal scale, as we see many solution providers and, and in-house sort of approaches do. They'll take one through five ordinal scales or one through 10 or even one through 100 scales. And they believe they're doing quantification because they're using numbers and they're using math. But those numbers because they're not quantities, they're just ordinal values. They're essentially text labels for buckets. And as such, they could be replaced with colors or words, or you could actually, uh, I have this one slide I like to use in some of my presentations when I'm driving this point home. You could take a one through five scale and replace the one through five with any arbitrarily chosen set of numbers that are in order, like negative eight plus two, 23, 157, and 2,801, they're still in order. They're just labels though. And all of a sudden, of course, the math doesn't work that they've been doing on their one through five scale. And frankly, it wasn't working when they were using one through five scales either, but they just didn't realize it. When they stopped to realize that you can't do math on labels, text labels, which those numbers, those ordinal values are, then the challenges and, and disadvantages and problems associated with that approach become pretty obvious. What Jack is getting at is that yes, there are buckets you can sort your risk factors into, but you can't do effective math with those bucket labels because each of those buckets containing different risks will have different variables of risks within them. While this is the dominant method for enterprise risk management, and most board members and CISOs have been using this method for years, Jack hopes to improve outcomes with his new method. The FAIR method is based on solving problems like return on investment calculations, or ROI, with a clear, defined unit of measurement. However, its adoption will require patience and proof. 
the entire industry is conditioned to think that that's that that works and and the stakeholders that we serve as an industry unfortunately also have either resigned themselves to that you know they can't do better than that those poor saps or whatever but the process of evolving expectations with and yeah let's call it expectations within an organization has to be approached with with some care and thoughtfulness for example you might be in an organization that, that does the ordinal you know math on buckets thing uh, which i'm going to steal by the way because i like that and clearly there are some problems they can't solve they won't even remotely try to solve like roi calculations okay that's that's just completely out of scope for them and so what you can do, and I have, I have done, and I've seen done by others, is say, rather than go in and, and try to just sweep all the ordinal math processes and beliefs and whatnot out the door, say, you guys go ahead and, and continue to do the ordinal math over there for now. We're going to solve this problem, the ROI calculation, helping to measure and articulate the value proposition of this initiative or that initiative. And my experience has been very often the, the ordinal math folks are going to say, yeah, go for it. I don't want any part of that. And you do that, you create success. You know, you're able to communicate in a new way to the stakeholders. The executives, at least the ones I've worked with, they get our, the notion of ROI and appreciate sort of this new perspective on the cybersecurity landscape and, and the improvements that you can make to their decision-making opportunities. And having that win, and especially within the eyes of the executive stakeholders, you now have sort of a, a foothold. And you can gradually look for other problems to solve that, that are either exceptionally challenging uh, for the ordinal math approaches, those sorts of things, and just gradually elbow your way in, so to speak. That's what I've seen to be most effective in that regard. Great. Great. So in short, don't tell people that astrology doesn't work. Just add a little bit more science to the pseudoscience, and over time, you'll get there. Yeah, exactly. Um, I have a bad habit of referring to things like math on ordinal scales as bloodletting, the, you know, the cybersecurity equivalent of bloodletting in medicine. That generally, I have to choose that phrase carefully, you know use it for purpose. And it's generally to be provocative. Not, I don't intend to be insulting about it, but it is to drive home a point that what we believe about the efficacy of something may be very different from its actual efficacy. And what the practice of medicine went through, you know, a couple of hundred years ago is in many ways very similar to, you know, what we as a profession are going through as we evolve. And that's normal and natural for any profession. It's, it's not a point of shame. It's it's just a fact. We are nascent as a profession, and we should expect to have these sorts of evolutionary opportunities, and we shouldn't feel bad about where we've been. We should be excited about where we're going. Doug Hubbard, author, inventor, and leader in the decision research industry, expands on this idea of current methods not being sufficient. His argument is that we must be more precise, especially with today's unprecedented access to data. His early experience at consulting firms opened his eyes to the industry favoring measurements that seem formal and structured over actually achieving the best results. I keep getting clients that aren't there. You know, they're using very qualitative methods. Even the big 
consulting firms, including the one that I originally worked for, it was big eight at the time. It's a big four or five now, right? But at the time, we were generating methods that seemed structured and formal. And I started using a term based on a few different research papers I read called the analysis placebo. So there were different research papers that indicated that as long as a methodology seems structured and formal in some way, their confidence in estimates and decisions always went up. But even when the performance went down, the confidence would be higher. So I called that the analysis placebo. It's not a perfect analogy for the term placebo, but uh, it, that's what I was calling it. And when I think about it, you know, all of our pharmaceutical clients, when they test a new drug compound or a vaccine, they effectively assume it is a placebo. So they gather data and they try to work out if this were a random fluke, how unlikely would these effect sizes be? That's what they're really doing. Well, we don't do that with methodologies and management decision-making at all. I'm glad that there are definitely some things where people are getting more used to data science, but then there's all these big strategy decisions where they think they got to go with their gut. So if they've got giant databases and they can come up with a neat model, you know, what kind of advertisements is going to sell my service better or something like this? Or how should I write social media posts in a way that analyzes all this data and makes them the most effective and so forth? I think that people are willing to do. But when it comes down to choosing a strategy for the corporation or should I invest money in these big R&D projects, they're still kind of winging it. They're still coming up with qualitative methods primarily. Yeah, that's fascinating, especially because those same strategists are insisting that, you know, in many cases, their companies market themselves as being data-driven and doing AI and having a lot of data science. The, the very decisions that they're making may not. In Doug's book, How to Measure Anything in Cybersecurity Risk, which he co-authored with Rich, he argues that many of the excuses given when it comes to whether something is measurable or not just don't hold up. I don't really believe there are things that literally have no observable consequences, but yet matter to us. Isn't that like the indicator of the thing to measure, like to decompose and measure? It's, you know, yeah. intangible, intangibles make the world go around, like love makes the world go around. So are mm. you, in your practice, are you almost like a canary in the coal mine listening for those intangibles and seeing that as an opportunity for measurement? Yeah, I mean, I haven't heard any really new ones in a while. I mean, even trustworthiness, I've heard that one before. I keep running across the same thing. So I, I'm a little bit of a broken record on these things. I think that's why I came up with the three illusions of measurability is because I kept running across the exact same misconceptions over and over again. So there's really nothing new under the sun there. That's why I called it how to measure literally anything. I meant it literally. Uh, so yeah, trustworthiness or collaboration or innovation or creativeness. In fact, I'm often telling people, those things that seem really hard to measure, often they've actually been measured before. You know, what's interesting about our internet age here with all these, uh, the web net internet thing that we got going on, all this stuff. Actually, 30 years ago, I used to go to a library for research and I don't have to do so much of that now. There's still some things I can get directly at a library, but I haven't frankly stepped in a library in quite a while. Uh, we have access to some academic uh, literature, databases, et cetera, and even just Google Scholar and other types of sources like that. There's really so much you can do if you just search. And I think it's not even quite a habit yet. It doesn't occur to people that, hey, you're not the first person to measure this thing. Maybe I should do some research on this. Maybe some big Harvard or MIT survey just got done of 200 companies and they found these interesting patterns. And 
you go find it and you make that part of your quantitative model. And it just seems like you did your homework, like you were prepared. Somebody asked you, where did that come from? Well, there's this giant study that uh, Stanford did, you know, 500 organizations over a five-year period. You don't know until you look for that stuff. And people are, I guess, are in the habit of not even looking. They sort of think, they assume that they're the first ones to measure it. I, I don't know how to break that habit. I run across it all the time. And I tell my own staff, I say, you know, you're going to run into difficult measurement problems, and you're really not the first person to measure it. People have written their... PhD dissertations on exactly that thing, perhaps. Right. So maybe you should find it. To follow up to Doug's perspective on intangibles and immeasurability, or the myths thereof, I had to ask him about cyber war. Cyber war is a big topic in insurance, and in many cases, it fits that mold of being considered immeasurable and therefore uninsurable. The premise is that catastrophic impact and cyber losses that would happen as a consequence of it are too interconnected and lack policy to shape any kind of foundational measurements. Surprisingly or not surprisingly, perhaps Doug sees this excuse as a fallacy too. So I guess, you know, it's interesting. There's um, other kinds of analogies. People look for highly uh, relevant analogies and anything outside of that, unlike it in any way, is not an analogy. And I call it the fallacy of close analogy. So here's the fallacy of close analogy for that particular uh, situation. We have a lot of data on wars. The technology in wars has changed a lot over time, but we still know something about the chance that one nation will attack another. Uh, that's a more fundamental question. Regardless of how technology changed over time, that's a more fundamental uh, question. And in some ways, it makes it easier for one nation to attack another, right? It's it's a lot easier when you see tanks rolling across your border or bombs being dropped in your city or something like this, but you don't necessarily see it if all you if all that's happening is they've been snooping on you for a few years so that they know how to gather a bunch of data on you. That's a little bit different. And of course, uh, we should take into account the possibility that large infrastructure systems could be shut down for some period of time. So right. we know something about the rate at which uh, countries attack each other. It's not a completely unknown quantity. We can say that, yes, uh, but this country attacking that country in this particular technology is different than all the other history. The example I use, Ann, and Richard, you've heard me use this example before. How does my insurance company compute a life insurance premium for me? Because I haven't died yet. So all they know about my rate of death is I haven't died yet. So how do they do that? Well, they they actually cast a wider net and they interpolate. We should be willing to do similar things. That's a better uh, basis of our judgment uh, than just guessing or saying that there's no way we can measure it at all. So we're going to give up even thinking about it rationally. It's useful to even put some bounds on it, right? So what has happened before? What's the rate at which these sorts of things happen? When it comes to the insurance industry's role in the cybersecurity space, cyber war, as Doug discussed, is often cited as an area with untapped, although murky, potential. I was curious about how we could have an impact if we zoomed out from these specific topics and focused on the bigger picture. I asked Jack for more insight. Rich and I are working in the insurance industry. Mm -hmm. How can insurance markets help the information security risk management world mature? So the insurance industry, I think, has an opportunity to share data related to losses, which you know help organizations um, have better loss tables for the impact side of the equation. But I think they've 
my experience has been, and, and I, I wouldn't be surprised if there are exceptions to this in the insurance industry, but my experience in the insurance industry has been that the methods they use to characterize, gauge, measure, characterize their clientele or their potential clientele in the underwriting process and whatnot is bucket map. And so I don't believe, and, and I've talked to a number of people in the insurance industry who would agree that they can't make good underwriting decisions because they just have no idea what really what the conditions of, of the organizations are that they're, they're insuring. And it's actually a little surprising to me because the insurance industry understands probabilities and math and, and you know, risk analytics and that sort of thing. But my experience has been, again, I'm sure there are exceptions to this and, and hopefully more now than maybe a few years ago when I was especially close to this. Too often I see that I have seen them put people in charge of sort of the risk measurement component for cybersecurity who are cybersecurity people, not risk people. You know, they, they know NIST 853 and ISO and whatnot backwards and forwards and in their sleep, but they couldn't measure risk to save their souls. And so what they do is they bring in their favorite checklist and their ordinal, you know, their bucket math. And that's the information they give to the underwriters who, again, my experience has been roll their eyes and shrug and go, oh, well, you know, I guess we can insure them. Well, why not? And so I think in order for the insurance industry to have an even more positive effect on, you know, the broader cybersecurity landscape, they have to get their act together when it comes to the risk analytics components of this. Now, I think you know, I had a conversation with someone from that industry earlier today who's focused on doing just that, which was exciting to see. So I hold out real hope for this, but I think there's... I think it's early days yet. There are challenges, which maybe we can get into here in a few minutes in our conversation that have to be overcome before I think they can really succeed at, at the risk analytics around cybersecurity. If you have those top of mind, I'd, I'd love to hear your take. So I don't know if, if you guys have uh, are familiar with my latest set of models. The FAIR controls analytics model is is to cybersecurity what physiology is to medicine. So a retired surgeon once said that in the 1800s, the medical profession had an encyclopedic understanding of anatomy, but knew squat about physiology. And the result was their treatments reflected that critical lack of information in you know, their diagnoses and treatments and that sort of thing. And if you look at any of the control frameworks that our profession uses today, that's cybersecurity anatomy. You know, that's telling you what the components of a program should be, which is really important information. But you, you can't practice medicine, effective medicine, with just anatomy. You have to have physiology. And, and FairCam is controls physiology. It describes, it's, it doesn't replace any of the frameworks. It is complementary to them. It describes how controls affect risk is a lot more complicated than people think. And not only that, it, it describes how they affect risk directly or indirectly, because some controls affect you know, the frequency or magnitude of loss directly. Others affect it indirectly through their effect on 
you know, downstream controls that, you know, do affect risk directly. So the bottom line is there is no control in any control library or framework that uh, stands on its own. It is a really complex set of interdependencies that determine the efficacy and risk reduction value of controls. And that's what FAIR, FAIRCAM defines is these, provides a, an ontology of the functions by which controls affect risk, again, either directly or indirectly. And in addition, it describes empirical units of measure for each of these. So we can empirically measure the efficacy and risk reduction value of controls using FAIRCAM in combination with say FAIR or some other sort of risk-focused analytic model. I love Jack's medicine analogy. Cybersecurity was lacking a standard foundational way to measure and compare variables, so he created his own. To summarize, the FAIR method is a risk-focused analytic model that allows companies to analyze their data and forecast their opportunities based on real controls instead of bucket math. They're able to empirically measure the efficacy and risk reduction value of their controls. And the response to this method has revealed just how revolutionary it is. And since I published FAIRCAM at, at the FAIR conference last fall, there's just been this onslaught of interest in, in incorporating FAIRCAM into the Risk Lens platform. And, and people are just dying to get their hands on something that can answer this question of how much value am I getting from this controller, that controller, which, which of my controls are most valuable and which are least valuable and those sorts of things. So I think, I think FAIRCAM also will be something of a breakthrough for us or watershed moment because whereas FAIR, you know, this risk analysis thing, it's, it's helping organizations understand how much risk they have and, and that sort of thing. But because it didn't include inherently this controls com analytics component, it relied heavily on the critical thinking skills and experience of the people doing analysis to get the control component right in analysis for ROI. And which again, if you have a well-experienced, strong critical thinker doing the work, that can work fine. It doesn't scale all that well, but with uh, FairCam that becomes just so much easier. Plus it will enable the use of security telemetry, I would argue for the first time on at scale where the results are reliably defensible versus some of what I see out there from a, you know, use of telemetry perspective. There, there are vendors out there who, who claim to be able to tell you how much risk reduction you're getting from this control or that control. And every instance I've seen in that, they're doing bucket math and they don't really have a clue as to the controls physiology thing. They're making a bunch of educated guesses on control you know, how controls affect risk and that sort of thing. But if you don't capture the interdependencies, those educated guesses are, there's no chance they're gonna be reliable. They may be right here and there, but not generally. As Jack highlighted, the FAIR method can improve forecasting and risk measurability. It opens the door for CISOs to become more cyber resilient and make decisions based on their actual numbers. Doug's AIE method also doubles down on the importance of defining clear components in your risk analysis. Well, what we do in our analysis for risk assessments and decision analysis in any area is we start with component testing of the methods. So even the 
very simple qualitative methods like a risk matrix with a score of one to five for a likelihood and an impact and so forth, those still have components. Like the component of using verbal labels to stand for a, a likelihood or verbal labels to stand for an impact. And the component of having a point scale that's five versus seven versus 10 and separating up likelihoods into buckets like that. And then putting it on a two-dimensional image of some sort. All of those components have been tested. So if I've got a big new system and I don't have any historical data on the rate of failure of this big new system, but I have a lot of data on the components, I can build on that. Now, there's actually a couple of other things that we know. Uh, when Richard and I did the survey for the uh, for my fourth book, the, uh, the green one, How to Measure Anything in Cybersecurity Risk, we surveyed 173 people in cybersecurity. And one of the questions we asked is, do you quantify the probability of losing a given amount of money or greater? So I'm paraphrasing a little bit. I forget exactly how it was, but it was something like that. And then we asked them a couple of different questions about whether or not they had a, let's say, data breach or some other adverse event related to cybersecurity in the past several years. Well, we annualized. We came up with an annual rate of those things based on their responses. And we observed that people who said that uh, they do quantify probabilities of various levels of losses, that's the way they said it, actually. They quantify the probability of various levels of losses. They reported about half the breach rates of people who said they didn't do that. Now, that might just be a fluke of the fact that, you know, maybe people who believe they're doing better quantitative models are less likely to admit they have a breach. I don't know. It seems like a convoluted kind of thing. It just happens to agree with a lot of other research that we know. Mm -hmm. There's been a couple of hundred studies on the relative performance of simple statistical models versus human judgment, expert judgment in a variety of fields. And I don't know why cybersecurity should be different, but we know that statistical models for disease prognosis are better than doctors or the chance of failure of small businesses are better than, let's say, loan approval officers, or criminal recidivism, or uh, which married couples are more likely to stay together, et cetera. In all of these different studies, this one researcher, Paul Meal, uh, was his name, he collected uh, over 150 himself. He said he could only find about six studies where the humans did just as well or slightly better than the statistical model, even a relatively simple statistical model. Now, this is a large amount of empirical data. It seems like a done deal. So now if, if somebody says, yes, but in this particular field, it's different than all the other ones, that says to me that they believe that humans think differently in that field, that our behaviors and our uh, the way we think about risk and probability and estimate things is just fundamentally different there. I don't think it is. I think we have the same kinds of homo sapien brains in both of those situations. And that's what we're actually modeling. As I mentioned, there's a large amount of data on the relative performance of quantitative models. And so we know that even if uh, we implement, let's say, some quantitative method in an organization and somebody says, well, you know, we haven't had a data breach, but how do we know it's because of this? They're making a classic mistake that they believe they only have the single data point. If I uh, get in shape and work out more, I can't say, well, does my risk of a heart attack go down because I'm getting in shape? Or could it be going down because of some other reason? There's no way I could know that. Well, I have a lot of other data. There's other kinds of research that says, yeah, there's reasons to believe that that would be the case. So we get to look at more than just a uh, cybersecurity expert's own immediate experience in organizations. Uh, in fact, we, we have more data than just cybersecurity itself. We can look at the performance of quantitative methods in general across many fields. Yeah, cybersecurity would have to be a, a really unique outlier in order 
for all of the findings in these other fields not to apply to cybersecurity. I guess I'm, I'm wondering if there's a bit of a prisoner's dilemma situation where if my organization can differentiate itself because we're better at risk management, we approach decision-making quantitatively and, and have appropriate amounts of risk mitigation and risk transfer, and mm-hmm. we're good at this stuff. We avoid incidents. And that differentiates me from my peers that don't do that stuff. But but really, if I collaborated with my peers and, and we all had an excellent approach, shared data, shared outcomes, shared decisions, maybe we would all be better off, but I would no, no longer be differentiating as an organization. I'm, I'm just sort of curious about the economics. Yeah, um, that's a good point. I wonder, I guess my first question is, is, is that what we need to differentiate on? Maybe we should all just be really resilient mm-hmm. with uh, cybersecurity. It, do we need to differentiate on that? Or can I differentiate on all the other products and service, services my company's supposed to do? On the core of right? my business. All these other things. Mm-hmm. Cybersecurity is this overhead thing I have to worry about because of the world we live in. Uh, but uh, yeah, I, uh, why not you know, differentiate on something other than cybersecurity. If you can collaborate and reduce your uncertainty on that, I think there's a lot of, a lot of opportunities for that. I think what Richard's doing with resilience is going to help do things like that because you collect a lot of claims data from a lot of organizations. So you'll get to use the fact that you, you're you not just talking to one organization. You get to use this claims data. So uh, I think that's interesting and that's really important. Thanks sure. for matching the pitch for us. So we didn't, we didn't have to. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so Doug, you've said that Risk management is the biggest patch for security. I'm paraphrasing what we said in the book, but risk management is the biggest patch for security. What does that mean? And in this case, really speak to the security practitioner or the CISO. What does that mean for them? Why would you say that? Because they're drowning in actual patch management issues. I mean, bad guys, sentient and artificially intelligent bad guys take advantage of patches. So they'd say, well, operationally, I've got all this stuff to do. But what do you, you're putting risk management above everything else for that. Mm. Well, actually, I guess what I, the, the biggest thing I would say is your most important decision is how to make decisions. So in life and business and government and everything, your most important decision is how to make decisions. We call that the meta decision. And in risk, we say your biggest risk is that you're measuring risk wrong. That's the meta risk is the is that how I'm assessing risk itself is broken. Now, I told even just in the last two or three weeks, I've mentioned this to more than one client. If you've got a lot of projects to prioritize, for example, and you don't know how to prioritize them, well, then I know what your highest priority project ought to be. It ought to be how to prioritize projects. Right. So think about it. If our risk assessment method itself is fundamentally flawed, then that misinforms everything else we do about risk. It's like the apex risk. It filters down into everything else that we're doing because we haven't thought about, well, how do I even quantify this risk? How do I make intelligent decisions about which risk to focus on or not? I was so inspired to hear how much Jack and Doug truly care about this domain and what has taken them on their paths to where they are today. This topic of measurement, of really advancing what we do in cybersecurity, And bringing the economics to bear is just so critical for our industry and for our careers as individual practitioners. So I couldn't be happier. Thank you to Jack and Doug for their time, expertise, and unique insights, and to our production team at Come Alive Creative. And thank you for listening. Follow the Building Cyber Resilience podcast wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss an episode. We'll catch you on the next show.